smells have an incredible power to evoke memories. Smell is a huge part of our taste. And actually, if you're eating, you actually smell before you actually put things into your mouth and your tongue registers the sensations in your mind. If I say bacon, immediately many of you have certain memories that come to mind. If I say durian, right? There's an instant reaction there. So you can share with me that memory. Some of you may actually respond very joyfully to that, that smell of durian because it reminds you of maybe sharing something with your grandparents when you were a child. I say stinky tofu. <laughs> Definitely. Some of you may have no experience with that because you have no idea what that is, but it may evoke certain memories. It reminds me of walking through night markets in Taiwan and searching for this delicacy. The smells of the Midwest. Actually, if I was to describe, people used to ask me, because I've been here long enough where no longer is the Midwest home, uh, but I did spend my childhood there. And the thing I mo miss most uh, from the Midwest, at least on a kind of rhythm basis of living in San Francisco, is I miss the smells of the air. Because it, when you live in some place where there's seasonal changes, you can sense them in the air. Those of you who lived in those places, that you smell when winter's coming. You smell when fall's coming. You smell when spring's coming. In San Francisco, you just smell the same all the time. Just fog or marijuana in the air. That's all you smell all the time, right? That's just, just wafting as you're walking through the streets of San Francisco. That's just all there is, right? So there's not a change of seasonal smells. But you smell that when you're in the Midwest. I remember I could smell when soccer's coming because box soccer's in the fall. I can smell it in the air. Paul describes ministry with this metaphor of smells in a very profound way to think about ministry. And it's a fundamental way that we need to learn how to, to be ministers of Christ. It's one of the fundamental ways we need to be as a church that wants to put Christ at the center. If we want to be a city on the hill that reaches our city, we, we have a vision for the world. If we want to do that, we have to understand and grasp some of these foundational metaphors that Paul uses here. Paul's still in the middle of addressing travel plans here. Um, that may seem mundane to us because we're not in, you know, necessarily interested in why he's making these decisions. But remember, this is a letter to a, a group of people he cares about and loves and they have a relationship. And there's a, there's a like an irreconciled moment here. He had to go there and he had a difficult time and he, he was going to go back a second time as he looked at, but he didn't. And so he wrote a really harsh letter to them to, to call them to respond faithfully. And he's addressing some of these travel plans. But even in those, again, all the scripture, even those parts where we may be looking at, like, what does this have to do with us? Really good for our understanding of the heart of an apostle, the heart of ministry. The first uh, one and a half chapters uh, have to deal with him explaining why he's not in Corinth. Uh, and then in chapters 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, he spends a significant amount of time, we're going to look in the next few weeks, thinking about the nature of ministry. And then verses 12 to 13, which we look, we're going to look at here, kind of form that bridge between those two sections. And what Paul does here in this transitional sentence and then using some of these metaphors for ministry is really give us some fundamental ways to think about the heart and the foundations of ministry. If we want to make gospel transform disciples, we have incredible foundational values that are expressed in this passage. When I say ministry, I don't just mean those who do this uh, full-time in our vocation like pastors. I don't even mean just those who are lay elders in our church who are working jobs but also shepherding in the church. 
the church people do ministry. Those who are part of the body of Christ, we are all called to be ministers in Christ. And so when I say we are making gospel transformed disciples, we all have various roles, not just in the function of what we do when we corporately gather, but even as we minister in our, in our city, in San Francisco, in the inner sunset where you live, where you live in the outer Richmond. These are places we exhibit ministry. And Paul's telling us, here's how you go about that. Here's how we make disciples. Two points, kind of two headers to think about. First, the heart of ministry. Second, we're going to look at some metaphors for ministry. Uh, first, the heart. Look at verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. He's in Troas which is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which if you ever get a chance to visit any place, if it's safe to visit Turkey at a certain time, I would highly encourage it. My wife and I were able to visit Turkey, and it's one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. Um, being in a city where you see underground churches and you see places where they developed whole communities to escape persecution but also continue the work of the Lord, it's just amazing to see that. Uh, but he was there, and a door opened, meaning... Uh, that metaphor is always has to do with an open door that the Lord opens and the gospel is being well received. Actually, one of the ways he calls us to pray at the end of Colossians chapter 4 is to pray for a door to be opened for the gospel. So effective ministry is happening in Troas. Opportunities were growing. Possibly the Jewish leaders there, right? His pattern of every single place he would go to was first to go to the Jewish synagogue. And if he received, uh, you know, positive feedback there he would minister there but often Paul would go there the Jewish leaders weren't ready they were against it and so they would kick him out and he would move on and then go to the marketplace he would do both of those two places where he would do his ministry possible the Jewish leaders were receptive to the gospel maybe Greeks were listening to him in the marketplace they, they were received he was receiving positive feedback from ministry growth opportunities were there but then in verse 13 he says his spirit was not at rest because he couldn't connect to Titus there he wrote them the Corinthians, a severe letter, was waiting to hear back. And the way that he delivered this severe letter, there wasn't email, there wasn't fax, there wasn't anything. He had to send someone. And so he sent Titus there. And he was waiting to reconnect with Titus so he would hear the report of how they received. He was expecting this. He was excited about this. It was something that was deeply affecting his heart. But he didn't find Titus there. Something must have held him up. Somehow the, the connection didn't happen. And so he didn't meet him in Troas. And so he immediately, because his spirit was not at rest, got on the first boat to Macedonia to find Titus and hear the report. He wanted to know, you know, as he sent them this letter, did, did they repent? Did they defend the gospel, the true gospel and Paul's apostleship? He wants the Corinthians to understand when he's being criticized for kind of being flippant or vacillating between ideas, changing his yeses and nos. He's not doing these, making decisions. He's not changing his plans because he doesn't care about them. He loves them so much that he even left a great ministry opportunity in the gospel to go back to find out about them. We've all had that experience of being unable to concentrate, maybe on a task or being unable to concentrate in the moment because there's something going on, unresolved issues, distractions. Maybe it's going on with your children, your parents, friends, a small group, your roommate. And when you have those tensions that exist, even though you may be present in the moment with someone else, your, your mind is somewhere else. You're distracted. 
And so someone can see this in your eyes and your lack of focus in the conversation. And it's really hard, right? Maybe you're trying to do your work. Maybe something happened this past weekend and tomorrow you're sitting at your desk, maybe in your home office or your office in place at your workplace tomorrow morning. But that tension that existed this last weekend is still on your heart. And so it's really hard to sit there and, and write the report you're supposed to write or respond to emails that now have flooded your inbox over the weekend because you're distracted. That's what's happening to Paul's heart. There's this tension that has existed with the Corinthians. It, it affects him so deeply that he can't focus even on a great ministry opportunity. And so he gets on the first boat to Macedonia. This is an amazing insight into the heart of Paul. It is heart for ministry. I think it's the kind of heart we need to understand for ourselves in our ministry as a church. It's something we need to have in our hearts as we do ministry in our lives. Let me unpack it in three points about his heart. First, Paul is vulnerable. He's admitting weakness here. Again, we sometimes think of Paul as writing major theological treatises and being a, a strong individual who just has everything put together in his life. No, Paul is weak and he admits it. He calls himself at the end of his life the, the worst of sinners. He's deeply aware of his brokenness. He's someone who's weak and he admits it. He's honest about it. He admits he can't work in the ministry because he's distracted. He's not ashamed of that. In fact, Paul uh, is showing us that God works in his weakness. This is what Bonhoeffer says, who was persecuted for his faith in Germany during the Nazi regime. He says, I believe that our mistakes and errors are not without purpose and that it is not more difficult for God to deal with them than our supposed good deeds. Sometimes we think that God works in and through us primarily because of our gifts that we're supposed to steward. And that is true. God works in and through the ways that he gifts us to the Spirit. But God also sometimes most radically works in the places we are most deficient if we surrender those things to him. Paul admits this weakness. He's vulnerable. This is the nature of the gospel. The gospel tells us we are dead in our sins. That's the first part of the good news is to hear the bad news. We actually need salvation. We need help. We cannot get right with God on our own. It tells us we're dead. No matter how much good you've done in your life, it's still not good enough. That's what the first part of the gospel says. It means that we're vulnerable, that we're in need. But sometimes I think, as we, especially as time goes on in following Jesus, we forget that moment and we forget that we're in deep need. We forget that we're vulnerable. And we end up pre pre presenting in our church communities, we present in our personal lives, this sense that we have to have everything put together. And so, so when someone asks you how you're doing, the only answer we have is okay, even though inside it may be terrible. And this is one of the ways I think we need to discover a heart of ministry. The, the gospel frees us to be open with brokenness, vulnerability, weakness. And I think one of the strongholds that may exist in performative cultures, in churches like ours, is maybe we can't get deeper in the gospel because the very first thing that the gospel does is tell us we're weak. We can't admit that we're weak. So even though you may be in a small group for 10, 50 years, when's the last time weakness was shared so that burdens were carried together and prayed over? Or is it only getting together to talk about content, which is good content, the scriptures are good, but there's no openness with our lives and there's no weakness which means there's not very deep work that needs to be done. Paul's vulnerable. That's one of the hearts of gospel ministry. There's his vulnerabilities open about his weakness. 
we as a church need to develop this. I think this is an area of growth because I think in a not only is American culture performative, I think many of us come from backgrounds and families which really elevated hard work. And so we, we understand that. And so weakness is not something regularly discussed, maybe ever in our family background and conversations. But the gospel opens us to be free with our weakness. And we need to learn how to do that in order to grow in the depths of the gospel we need. Second heart of ministry we see from Paul is he values people over success. You see this here. He had an open door in Troas. Successful ministry opportunities were there and he left it. I read this and I'm like, what are you doing, Paul? Because my inclination is wrong and it needs to be corrected at times. That I would rather focus on something that's seemingly more pos- positive and successful than actually get into the, the, the weeds of, of caring for people who are actually attacking him. Like, that's amazing. He values the Corinthians who attack him so much, he's willing to leave a successful ministry. I, I don't think my inclination would be like that. Because I, I, my, my inclination isn't trained like Paul's heart to lean and run towards people that may be even attacking me. But he does. He forgoes ministry success because he cares so deeply. This is so countercultural to Western success, performance-driven people. We often define ourselves based upon our success. We, we celebrate those who have success. We would sacrifice for the sake of success. But Paul sacrifices success for the sake of the people. So different. His love for people trumped his opportunity. That is something that I need. I, I, I want to work into our leadership more and more. I want that for the heart of our church. Our, our church is not doing well because of budgets, buildings, and size of people. That, that's not how we evaluate if a church is doing well. But I think based upon our cultural expectations, that's often how we default evaluate if a church is going well. There's lots of people there. There's enough money there. They have more buildings. That's often because we're borrowing cultural expectations of success which if we do that on like we just do that just because our culture is doing it we end up disregarding people that's just naturally what ends up happening but paul leans into people will even leave successful things for the sake of people now that's not an absolute you don't always do that he's not saying this is like kind of an, an absolute truth that every single time you do this but there's a there's a value out there his heart he cares about people Maybe think about this. Um, I've had friends who share with me. These are friends who are not in ministry, who are a part of a, a local church in a city. And I remember them processing and just deeply cared about, like that showed me their heart for the Lord and heart for people. They were given a, an amazing job opportunity. They were headhunted. They, they were in a career path. They were given this amazing opportunity, but it would require them to move from that city. And as they processed and prayed over this as a family, they share with me because in, in our, if you just follow the cultural expectation, if your career is first and success is what we're cha- cha- aiming for, there's, no, there's not even a question. When you're provided a better opportunity, you automatically go. But the way that he prayed with this family and the way he shared about this, he, he considered all the things that were going on in his life, his location, his neighbors, he, like, he mentioned people by name he, he cared about. He mentioned his church and the love he had for the people there, the investment he had there. 
And eventually they chose not to pursue this at this time because in this season they believed that God did not want them to pursue career success, but the relationships that they had there. That is an incredible, humbling way to think about life. That people matter in that. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if he chose that particular career path, that would be wrong, but he processed that in light of his relationships, people, his church, his relationship to the Lord. A third thing about the heart of ministry, uh, this is more negative thinking about this, but I do think it's worth thinking about this perspective. Satan can use our relational sins to stop ministry. We kind of touched on that last week, right? At the end of verse uh, 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So he's using relational strains to, to stop ministry in the back. Even though it is a positive thing to look at Paul's heart for the Corinthians leaving Troas, what Satan could do in this circumstance, one way to think about this, is that he stopped ministry from happening in Troas. See, we're not given an assessment of whether or not it was the right thing for Paul to actually stop ministry. We don't have an assessment here in Scripture. But it does show us Christians are deeply interconnected. And one of the negative sides of relational strains, tensions, and sins, irreconciled relationships, is that it stops successful ministry in Troas. We have to realize Satan's schemes are not always in the big, obvious, supernatural ways. His schemes are regularly at work in the subtle, in the brokenness of our relationships, in grudges that we hold against people, in the ways that we are unforgiving towards other people. The conflict in Corinth made Paul so anxious it stopped the growth in Troas. His grief and anxiety caused him to leave an open door. Something to consider. But think about his heart for ministry, for people. It's amazing. He, he, he valued this vulnerability towards them. That's the kind of heart I think we need as we think about ministry in our church, whether it's ministry in formal programs like our children's ministry or youth ministry. I would love to see more vulnerability. I would love to see in our community groups, vulnerability that's open about brokenness so that the gospel can be spoken in there and burdens can be carried. I would love to see a value on people that as we're thinking about how to make much of Jesus in our strategies and we think about plans, those are good things, but we, we have a priority on who are the people we're trying to reach? Who are, how are our people doing? Let's look at these metaphors, not just his heart. Second, he gives us some amazing metaphors for ministry. Look at verse 14. He gives both of them in this verse. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession, procession. That, that's the first metaphor, triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the second metaphor. They're related, but distinct. There's a triumphal procession and a fragrance, a smell. The triumphal procession is a very common celebration in Roman culture. And in the parade, uh, it's, it's, I'm calling it a parade because that's what it would be most contemporary to us, you would have all kinds of sounds, you'd also have smells. So he's kind of locking in one kind of image he has, applying something that's common in their culture to get them to think about ministry. But the triumphal procession, uh, you see this all over Greek and Roman literature. You see it on their coins, you see it on their paintings and statues. If you said triumphal procession to someone in this time, they would all know what they're talking about. It's a military victory where a conquered people would be paraded through the city, led by the conquering victor, the general, and his army. 
The general would often ride on a, a chariot drawn by horses or even sometimes elephants wearing a cloth, a cloth in like a purple toga. And he would carry a scepter, kind of displaying for everyone his power and authority. Apian, a Greek historian, described General Pompey's third triumph in 61 BC, describing the triumphal procession of Pompey. In the triumphal procession were two horse car carriages and litters laden with gold or other ornaments of various kinds, also the son of Hestapis, the throne and scepter of Mithret. Mithridates, I can't say these names either, Europa himself and his image, eight cubit high, made of solid gold and 75,100,000 drachmas of silver coin. Also an infinite number of wagons carrying arms and beaks of ships and a multitude of captives and pirates, none of them bound, but all arrayed in their native costumes. The priests would burn incense, musicians would play along this triumphal procession. The most common way we see this in the United States is probably when a major sports team wins a championship. Like the Super Bowl. Sorry, that may be too soon for 49er fans. But when a team wins, they, what do they do? They come home and then the city blocks off streets. They have a parade. Right? SF has had so many since we lived here. I used to just say, it, you know, all the wins came from Jeanette and I moving to San Francisco because it was after moving here, the Warriors won a bunch of times, even the, you know, the, the, the Giants won a bunch of times. And you imagine all these scenes, right? If you, even if you have never gone to them, maybe pre-COVID you were downtown and you saw people lying in the streets from your office, you could see this. People would throw confetti, they would wait all day, they would celebrate, they would sing, and they would parade the, the champions down. They wouldn't parade the losing team behind them. That would be kind of weird, right? But that was actually what happened in these triumphal processions. And that'd be kind of really interesting if you actually had the winning team and then the losing team behind them, kind of sad. But they had the conquered people because they would now be their slaves in this case. Another way of sports analogy doesn't work for you. I imagined uh, watching as a little kid in that scene, right? Uh, Aladdin is trying to pretend to be you know, more than he is. Not just a street rat. He's trying to be a prince. And then he asked Genie to make him a prince. And you know that famous scene, right? He's going to meet Jasmine and he's Prince Ali Ababla, right? You have him making all these amazing things for him to march and parade into the city to show how great he is. Prince Ali, famous as he, Ali Ababla. Do you remember that scene? It's a celebration of victory, accomplishment. Paul uses this common everyday Roman triumphal procession and applies it to Christ. Christ is the general leading a triumphal procession all over the world. He's conquered death. He's defeated Satan. He's marching throughout the world. But what is Paul's role in it? That's the key question we have to ask. It's actually not what we first think. When I first read this and I kind of think about Paul's role and I think about Paul, I would assume he's one of the soldiers, one of the, you know, secondary apostles uh, following Christ in the, as a conquering army. He's a, he's a captain celebrating. And actually, that's what many scholars used to think for a long time because they couldn't actually write down what the language actually says. But more modern-day scholars, I think they are more honest about the language. And this is probably more honest with what Paul thinks of himself. He's not, a, he's not a captain. He's not one of the soldiers. The language, he's being led 
So it doesn't mean he's a soldier. He sees himself as a slave, as a prisoner conquered by Christ, which actually makes sense why he uses in other places of his letters. He describes himself in the title, he's a slave of Christ. He's the conquered enemy. The only other place you see this idea of triumphal uh, being used in Paul's language is in Colossians. He says this about spiritual warfare. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in Colossians, it's Jesus triumphing over Satan, demons, and powers. Here in 2 Corinthians, he sees Jesus triumphing over him. He's not a big shot general. He's a conquered enemy. God subdued him on the road to Damascus. He sees himself as being a slave to Christ, previously an enemy, now conquer, but still having the joy of being a part of Christ's procession. That's how he sees himself. This is an incredible metaphor for ministry. I think it corrects some of the ambitious inclinations of our hearts. Remember James and John? Especially their, their mom wanted to ask Jesus when they were in the upper room, right? Where Can we, can we get the best seats for my children? They, they were arguing, who's the best? <laughs> That's an amazing argument, right? Because they're thinking, well, Jesus is going to win. He's going to be this conquering king, defeating all the Romans to throw off the oppression. And the Israelites are going to be military power, a capitalistic power in this world, right? They're going to have money. They're going to have all this. Is that our heart? To be first? Paul sees himself as a conquered enemy. Do we see ourselves as having this float in the parade of Jesus where there's this giant floating joey head in the Macy's parade of Jesus? Do we sometimes think, we won't say this out loud because it'd be ridiculous to say this, but do we think in our hearts, do we do Jesus a favor because we're his? I mean, Jesus is so lucky to have me. I mean, look at all I have. Look at how I have to bring to this kingdom. Do we, do we expect him to, to, to sing about us? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't she beautiful? Or do we see ourselves, like Paul, as a conquered enemy, just lucky to be part of the parade? Paul saw Jesus as having triumph and his ministry as one as being defeated and surrendered to Jesus. He sees his suffering as displaying the glory of Jesus. This marked his identity. This is the identity of Paul's ministry you see throughout his letters. He doesn't see himself as a victorious one. He sees Jesus as the victorious one. He sees himself as being a slave. That makes sense why the, the super apostles were criticizing Paul for not being a real apostle because this is the natural inclination of human hearts, isn't it? When you see someone and their life is in ruins because of, you know, the, the religion they're following or the, the path of their life, you would think they're not doing a good job. Paul was suffering all over the place. He writes about it throughout his letters. He, he, he is someone, if you saw him in contemporary terms, this guy has failed 20 church plants. He's lost millions of dollars. He's had his life persecuted. He, he's failed so many things. What we see as someone as following Jesus, who's doing a good job in, for the name of Jesus, now, we would question that, wouldn't we? But Paul is trying to show us the heart, the identity of ministry, the identity of followers of Jesus is like a conquered enemy. So suffering, when it happens into our life, 
for the sake of Jesus, not for the sake of us being jerks, but for the sake of actually following Jesus. That is the glory of Christ. He's showing us the suffering and challenges in his life for the sake of Jesus. They aren't the things that disqualify him. They're actually the things that do qualify him. What's the nature of ministry? What's the identity of followers of Jesus who truly follow him? It's a conquered individual who actually often have to take up their cross and follow Jesus. But it's worth it because of Jesus. This is a very hard identity to work into our lives because we don't want to suffer. We don't want challenges. We don't want difficulty. But Paul sees fundamental to what Jesus honoring ministry looks like is to see yourself and put yourself in positions where things may actually be hard for the sake of Jesus. That's why my heart burns. So I've had a number of different chances to sit with Christian leaders, pastors. I, I've sat with people who started dozens of churches and I, I, I've sat there in awe and wonder because this is hard. I can't lead one church. They, I don't understand how they can lead dozens of churches. And I'm, I want to learn. I want to sit there. But my, my heart burns the most. It always burns the most. Is when I sit with Christian leaders in churches where they're being persecuted. And that's because I can, I can see Jesus in that. More than I can see it in the, all the places where things are supposedly successful. I see it when someone's, they, they're praying. The, the prayer requests I get from church planters in in different places where they're very educated, isn't just, oh, do we have enough resources? You know, have these problems? No, their lives are very much at risk. And I see Jesus in that. My detention is, I, I realize in my own heart too, like, do it? Do I even want that? Am I willing to want that? Second metaphor he uses related is this idea of smells. Look at the rest of verse 14. So not only does he see himself as a slave, he sees himself as being also a sacrifice which gives off smells. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What do people get from you when you enter a room or leave a room? If, they, if you had like a spiritual uh, smell, what do they whiff when, they, when you leave a room, when you come into a room? Do, you, do they smell Jesus? Do they smell bitterness? Do they, do they smell vanity? Do they smell envy? Do they smell an air of narcissism? What smell do you give off when you enter into your small group? What smell do you give off as you're walking your pets throughout your neighborhood and you interact with your neighbor? Paul says, he and those who he is ministering with, because they are slaves of Christ, they're not, they're not just slaves, they're actually sacrifices. Because of their preaching, they're, they're giving off the smell of Jesus. Paul probably brings up smells because in the procession, there would often be priests uh, lighting incense for the smells. But I actually think it's more than just the idea of incense in the procession. This is where he's kind of mixing metaphors. The language here is specific to an Old Testament understanding. He uses fragrance and aroma. Those two words are used everywhere in the Old Testament, at least 40 times when I first last looked this week, to describe in English, you translate it pleasing aroma. And that always refers 
to a sacrifice. A grain sacrifice, a food sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice. So Paul sees himself as a conquered rebel, a slave, and a sacrifice. Makes sense why he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We read this, and because I think we, we don't have a, a sacrificial system, so we don't understand the visceral sounds, smells, and sights of sacrifice, we kind of think about this as kind of, we Christianize this and make it sound really great. But this is death, a burnt offering. This is blood. This is actual life given. Do we see ourselves as Christians because we're slaves and a living sacrifice? I'm convinced, and I thought about this and prayed about this week. This is one of the main reasons people stumble when it comes to the gospel, if they dig deep enough. Yes, there are intellectual ob objections to Jesus in the gospel and the Bible. Yes, often some of the reasons that people give why they can't become Christians is hurts. And there are hurts that we need to really acknowledge and sit with people. But actually, I think fundamentally people get tripped up over the gospel is because they don't want to die. They don't want to die to themselves. They don't want to die to surrender. We like the images in the Bible that talk about us being children of God, beloved of God. These are true. But at the same time, we are slaves of Christ. We are sacrifices for the name of Christ. We give up ourselves for the sake of Jesus. I think this is not only the reason why people get tripped up when it comes to accepting Jesus, this is also why churches and Christians can be so lukewarm. And we, we have the best news ever in the history of the world. We can live forever. This, this wrong, like guilt that we, and shame that we carry around, this can be forgiven. All the things that we've ever done wrong, they can be washed clean. This is good news. So how can we as followers of Jesus with that good news be so weak and lukewarm? Because we don't want to die. And when I say that, I don't want to die at times. We don't want to be sacrifices. We don't want to put our lives up for Christ. We don't want to die. Are we willing to embrace these kinds of identities? That we're actually a slave in Christ, that we're willing to actually be sacrifices for the living Christ, that would actually cause revival. That would actually change our church. That would, that would help our kids. We often pray, and that, this is a prayer, right? We want all the kids who come to our youth ministry, come to our children's ministry, to get a chance to hear the gospel and respond faith to Jesus and come to faith in Jesus. You know why so many of our young people, and they say this, they've been saying this forever. This is true of not just young people, though. The, I think one of the main reasons young people, children, youth in our church don't come to Jesus, they don't see it alive in us. We talk about this, and then we live like the rest of the world and culture around us. Jesus calls us to die, but he's worth it. And we don't want to die. I'm, being, I'm trying to be vulnerable. That, that's hard for me, too. And I pray that the Spirit of God will cause something in my heart, cause something in yours. As you look at this passage, honestly, this is what ministry, the fundamental heart of ministry is here. It's about people. It's about embracing this identity of being a slave in Christ, a sacrifice for the sake of Christ. If that happens, that's where life comes. It's not just doing religious things anymore. 
Is that just being busy? Is that just sprinkling a little bit of Jesus on something we just do week after week? That's where the church comes alive. But it comes alive when we are willing to die. Churches that are alive, Christians I've met that are alive, they're willing to die to themselves. And part of this fragrance, how do you give off an air of Christ? Paul says it in verse 16 to 17. To the one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This fragrance that you give off, it has to come from learning to embody and speak the gospel. When you speak of Christ, when you embody Christ in your life, that will smell like life to some. It will also smell like death to others. Paul is balancing this important balance between his life and his message. If we want to make gospel transform disciples, if we want to see Christ expand his, expand his kingdom in and through our church, we need to be able to embody the gospel in our lives and embody it in our message. I think the church often pits preaching and life against each other, and actually Paul never does that. He requires both. You need a life that matches the gospel. You also need to be able to explain the gospel in your words in ways that people understand in your time. He's using a Roman analogy of triumphal procession. That's incredible con contextualization. Can we speak of the gospel in ways that people understand in our time? We have to have a fragrance from our speaking in our lives. We need both. And think about your life can open doors. I remember uh, during 2020, one of the things that we did in response to some of the hard things and I'm praying and I don't always do it publicly because I also don't, I, I'm processing things myself. So, and I also don't want the church to be a, a platform that's used, I think, uh, inappropriately. But, you know, during 2020, we did spend some time talking specifically about the racial injustice in our in our in our country and definitely my heart has been wretched this past couple of weeks in praying and thinking through recent issues and challenges and i remember talking with one of my neighbors we led a prayer gathering along great highway during that time and uh my neighbor uh isn't a believer and we, i was just he was asking why we're doing that and i got a chance to share explicitly like we believe people are made in the image of god and that means we care about people people we even disagree with people who actually may sometimes hate us we want to love and care and that that door of trying to respond and being a place in our city and being present i love how many people who are especially younger people care deeply about justice matters and they're being involved and caring and those things open doors you see how it opens doors of conversations it does if you get engaged in the things that are happening around, it may open doors, but you also, we also need to speak of Christ. Those things both need to go hand in hand. We need to be able to be engaged with our lives and speaking of Christ. When he's in Troas, Christ opens doors for him. His life as a, as a slave, as a sacrifice, was giving a fragrance, and he's also speaking about Christ. It says in verse 17, we'll close here, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This metaphor he's using is 
kind of one we you can see if you especially if you visit like flea markets or if you visit other countries that have you know, markets where people are selling stuff they're often sometimes especially if you visit other countries you may not sure if you're getting ripped off and so you you don't know right and, and even in paul's time people who are selling their wares they were known to be shady they're peddling that's where the word kind of brings to mind i, I think as we think about the heart of ministry our identity is ministry we need to be very cautious of not peddling we don't peddle like the super apostles in paul's time does but we sometimes peddle i think we can peddle by our techniques we can peddle by our technology i'll give you one example and I, i'll be very cautious i'll be gentle but clear on this uh and this is something I, I talked at length when we had uh, Zach, our uh, worship uh, resident with us for some time as helping us think about worship. You know, musicians are very good at like affecting emotions, right? That's why we love songs. That's why every song is about love, right? We, that's one of the great ways we express love is through song and music. And something that the church can do with music is manipulate. <laughs> it can, right? You, you can create a context where people feel things. Musicians know how to do this. And we were talking and praying through this because we, we don't want to manipulate people, but we do want to present something that actually honors the Lord and brings people to worship. How, how do we balance that? I, I think we need to be very cautious. If we just started using fog machines at church on Sunday, it's not something common. We, could we be peddling? And, it's not, and I say that gently because I think I'm not speaking against fog machines. I think they could be used very well. If we're doing a play with, in our church and we're doing something, that'd be very helpful. I think if there's an appropriate place for things there's a place for amazing celebration even over the top stuff you see this in scripture but are we doing things in a way that are peddling i think we have to think about this are there are there we borrowing strategies and plans that actually peddle and when we do that you know what happens if you, if we are become peddlers of god's word if we become become peddlers of christianity and and we could do this then we end up actually making not disciples, we make consumers. Uh, one commentator says this, I found it very helpful. He's talking about a church, when, when a church no longer sees themselves as the people of God, as see themselves as you know slaves in Christ, and, and just kind of functions like the world. This is what he says, the church becomes a conglomerate of consumers held together only by its common view that this or that particular church happens to be the institution in the area designed, best designed to provide the services sought. Going to church is more like going to a supermarket than getting together with family. If we want to be making gospel trends, if we want gospel trends from what Jesus-centered people in our church, I think we need to really think deeply about the identity as being slaves and sacrifices. Otherwise, we may be tempted to peddle. We end up doing things because we want to draw people to have crowds or feel a certain way. We end up doing church that's not honoring to Jesus. It just ends up being like a religious business in our society where there's no life. Paul had the heart of his ministry drawn towards people. He was very vulnerable. He saw himself, his identity as a slave, and sacrifice, he was sincere in his ministry. Started this year longing and praying for revival in our church. And every single week we're looking at Second Corinthians. I'm sensing that God is giving us 
nuggets of ways that we need to align ourselves as a church, align your lives as followers of Jesus so we can experience that. In this, if we want to see revival of life in Jesus, love for Jesus, more people reach for Jesus, it comes when we embrace some of these difficult things in this text. And that's where the Spirit of God has to work. I cannot say enough to convince you. I cannot change your heart on this. I cannot change my own heart on my own, by, by my own will to even die. I need the Spirit of God to, to work in my heart to say, are you willing to die? And where does that need to happen? And it happens in different places in the different spheres of responsibilities and relationships we have. I pray Christ and His Spirit would work that way in our church. Would you take a moment and pray with me? Maybe just ask the Lord to, to revive us to these, these identities that we must embrace. Maybe your prayer is just, Lord, help me to take that first step towards this. I want this. My heart yearns for it, but I don't know. And just surrender that to the Lord. Or maybe you, you clearly know the place you're called to die and you're unwilling to. And you say, God, help, help me. Help me believe that you are more than enough. Help me believe that you are the king that's worth just being in your parade. Father, thank you for honoring these prayers. Revive us in yourself by your spirit. Father, our life, just like we had to see in Christ, death had to come before resurrection. Help us to understand where we need to die to ourselves so we can experience life in you. I pray that that would happen as we love our children and love our youth. Pray that would happen in our community as we love one another. I pray that it would bleed over into our relationships in this city that needs to see Jesus. Not just religious activity, they need to see Jesus alive. And I pray he would come alive in us. Father, we ask your spirit, because only your spirit can do this work cause in us a desire for you that overwhelms everything else so we're willing to lay it all down at the cross. We surrender these things to your name and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.